Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning and we hear your word, as we open your word, it is my prayer that you would speak to us through it. Lord, that anything that I have prepared, if it is out, if it is out of human wisdom, that you would let it fall to the ground like ash. But if there is something there that is from the wisdom of God through the gift of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our ears would be open to hear and to listen to you, to the things that you want to speak to us. God, and that we wouldn't just hear, but we would respond. as James so prophetically wrote in his letter, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. Knowing that you have called us unto yourself. And so this morning, Lord, make very little of me and very much of yourself so that you may receive all the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're starting a new series. I should say we're taking a break from our Character of God series because we're going to come back to it for a little bit right after Lent, right after Easter. But during this season of Lent and leading into Easter, I want us to explore something a little bit different. Not so much different, but a little bit different. During this season of Lent, I want us to look at the final words of Christ, of Jesus, as he hung on the cross. There are seven final sayings that Jesus made as he was on the cross suffering and suffocating to death before he gave up his spirit. And then we know in three days rose again for us. But what are these seven last sayings of Jesus and what do they actually mean for us? Why should I care that in Jesus' dying breaths he said these words? And so that's what I want us to explore are these final words that Christ gave us in his final moments on this earth before he died, rose again, and then ascended into heaven. And so this morning we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. And so it's a short passage because all these sayings end up right next to each other. And so I don't want us to get too far ahead and end up reading another one of what Jesus was trying to say uh, before we've had time to explore the single verse that he was speaking to us this morning. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 23. And we're going to be starting in verse 32. But up to this point, Jesus has already 
walked the road, made his, his final approach to Calvary, carried the cross, and now he has been nailed to that cross. And that's where we find ourselves in our passage this morning. And so hear these words from Luke. Now two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. As we walk through these sayings of Jesus, what I really want to do is just offer reflections on them. I'm not trying to get preachy or super sermonic or, or whatever it might be. I just want to offer you some reflections on what these words mean for us, what they might mean for you, how they've been speaking to me, and maybe in light of that, all of us can come and draw closer to the heart of Jesus during this season of Lent, during this season where he is making known the full work that he accomplished for us on the cross. And I think each of his seven sayings invite us into that space to understand and know exactly who Jesus is and who he has called us Two, when he called us to himself. And so what's interesting, I think, is that that very first passage, or that first verse in 32, it shares with us that there are two others also who were criminals who were being led away to be put to death with him. But there were these criminals that Jesus was being led to his death with two other criminals. And I think that's interesting because it says that they were being put to death with him. And the first thing that I am drawn to is I'm reminded in Galatians 2, chapter 20, that we're not just beside him on the cross. We aren't just like the criminals who are beside him. In fact, Galatians tells us that we are crucified with Christ or crucified with with Christ, not just beside him, but with him. And that's significant in, I think, so many ways because it's not just saying, hey, you might be on his left or his right, like you might just be someone else. No, Christ is actually inviting us into his own crucifixion, into his own death on the cross, I think oftentimes what we have to remember is that our faith is an invitation into the sufferings that Jesus experienced himself. And so we don't literally have to experience crucifixion because Jesus has invited us to be crucified with him. And so when we hear this passage, one, we should be aware that our Savior is being led to his death in the same manner that criminals were led to their death. Jesus, who is completely innocent, and we'll talk a little bit later about his sinlessness, but he was being led 
to his death just like a criminal. He was being treated as a criminal. In every way, he was treated as we rightfully should have been treated in the sight of God. But Jesus took that on. He invited us into crucifixion with him. In fact, actually, if you turn a little bit earlier into Luke chapter 22, verse 37, we actually see that what we read in 2332 is actually a fulfillment of something that was said earlier. Verse 37 in chapter 22 says, For I tell you that this which is written must be completed in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its completion. And so that's actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. And so I just want to turn to Isaiah and and read that passage Isaiah 53 says this in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I only point that out because... As we come to understand the fullness of this passage, we have to understand that what's happening is a prophetic fulfillment. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53 that Jesus would be counted as a criminal, that part of his death would be that he would be seen as one that was dying with other transgressors. So this is Part of the good news for us is that when we read Scripture, we should see it in the fullness of the light that the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of the gloriousness of one. His name is Jesus. And so as we read these verses this morning and we first question, my goodness, how could Jesus be counted as a criminal? How could Jesus be a transgressor? How could they lead him to his death treating him like he was this really bad person. It was because it was prophetically stated that he would be counted among transgressor, transgressors. Not that he was one, but that he would be counted among them, numbered among them. And so when we read this passage in Luke, we should be encouraged that the prophetic fulfillment is happening. That what Isaiah prophesied 400 years before is coming true in the present day with Jesus on the cross. So we have this opportunity to be invited into Scripture and to witness prophetic fulfillment. But also, as we continue to read this, we should also realize that in verse 33, it then says, and when they came to the place called the skull. Another prophetic fulfillment. And you might be thinking, well, where's that prophesied? This actually takes me all the way back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, when 
God is giving his curse to the serpent. After deceiving Adam and Eve and causing all of creation to fall into sin, God gives a single curse. He says, but he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He shall bruise you on the head, but you shall bruise him on the heel. And when I think about this, this place where Jesus went to be crucified, the, the image that I have is one in Genesis chapter three where God said that from the seed of the woman would come one that would bruise the head of the serpent. Well, where's the head? It's the skull. We see more how the work of Christ was to crush the enemy. You see, the enemy works in a single way. In fact, throughout all the Old Testament, the the term that we have, the name that we have for the enemy, Satan, comes from a Hebrew word, ha-satan. And ha-satan actually has a specific meaning. It means the accuser. The entire role of the enemy is to accuse you and to keep accusing you and to accuse you again and again and again until you're so worn down that you actually believe the things that he has accused you of. He likes to bring up the things where you've messed up, where you've screwed up, where you haven't really fulfilled all that you were supposed to. And so he just keeps bringing accusation again and again and again and again. And so in this passage today, what we're seeing is the work of Jesus undoing the name of the accuser, undoing the role of Hasatan in our lives. First, through a prophetic image, by the moment that that cross is driven into the place called Golgotha, into the place where that cross is driven into the skull, the skull is bruised. And Jesus' feet sit on top of the skull. What a powerful and prophetic image of what Jesus is doing. In actuality, we see in a single picture of the cross in Golgotha. And let me bring a little bit of clarification. There's three terms here. The skull which is the English translation, Golgotha, which is the Aramaic term for the place. And then oftentimes we also hear the word Calvary, which is the Latin translation for the skull. And so all three are the same, the skull, Calvary, Golgotha. So anytime you see those, that's what's happening. That's what we're seeing. That's what we're we're supposed to be led to is that moment of Jesus on the cross crushing, crushing the skull. And so this is the crucifixion. This is what is happening. What's happening in the physical, Jesus is about to accomplish in the spiritual. And so then we move on and we see that fulfillment again in Isaiah 53 verse 12, where not only does it say that he is going to be numbered among the transgressors, but it also then says that Jesus intercedes for the transgressors which is where we get this first saying of Jesus. In verse 34, 
But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus literally, the first thing he does when he is nailed to the cross and driven into the ground is he prays for the very people that nailed him to it. The very people that nailed Jesus to the cross, the first words he says is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I gotta say that's powerful for me because I know that the first thing that somebody does when they wrong me is I curse them, I uh, do not like them, I don't want to offer forgiveness at all, and I certainly don't even want to think about praying for that person, uh, unless that prayer is imprecatory, and it's like, Lord, will you smite them to death? You know, kind of like how uh, James and John, you were like, when they were walking through Samaria, and they wanted Jesus to call fire down from heaven for the Samaritans that were making fun of them, right? Like, I'm, I fall more in line with James and John in their thinking than I do with Jesus's, which would be to pray for the very people that nailed him to the cross. And mind you, I would fall probably among those people. And more than likely, you also would fall among the people that nailed him to the cross. Because it was the Gentiles that nailed him there. But even so, we would also still probably have the heart of the Jewish people who cried out for Barabbas, the murderer, to be set free over Jesus. They would rather a murderer be released among them than Jesus to live with them, to teach them, to show them a better way. You see, here's the thing. Oftentimes what's going on in our own walk of trying to figure out what's in our hearts, why we are led to sin still is out of these places of fear, of uncertainty, of, of our own personal desire, our selfishness, our pride. These are all things that, that still plague the human experience because of brokenness within the world. But Jesus is offering something so much more and beyond that. But the problem is, at least in this text, is that people were so blind to their own sin that they were willing to sacrifice their answer in order to have their way. When Jesus wants us to have his way. But Jesus offers a prayer instead of a curse to these people that have crucified him on the cross. And he does so because he's demonstrating for us what he has already asked us to do in our own life and walk with him. In fact, if we turn to Matthew Chapter 6, verses 12 and 14. And we've already prayed it this morning. 
Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then Jesus says about that, he says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Jesus is literally demonstrating on the cross the very thing that he taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive those that have transgressed against you so that your Father who is in heaven would also forgive you. And here Jesus is on the cross in his final breaths offering forgiveness, praying for forgiveness. And who's he praying to? He's praying to the Father to forgive them. Because Jesus already extended forgiveness. And so he's asking them, asking the Father to forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Why? Because, I don't know, I think about it. I'm not a parent, but I can only imagine that if somebody murdered my son, I'd be pretty angry. I'd be pretty upset. And we're, we're thinking about this in two different ways, right? Because first, yes, Jesus had to go to the cross. There was a work that had to be completed in his sacrifice, that the wrath of God was going to be satisfied on the cross for, for the forgiveness of our sins. But at the same time, Jesus is also praying for us that we would be forgiven of our sin. And that's unbelievable to me because I know who I am. I talked about it a little bit last week when we were talking about grace. I know who I am. I wouldn't choose me, and I certainly wouldn't forgive me. But here, the Lord Jesus, on the cross, as he is dying and breathing his last breaths, made intercession on our behalf that we would receive forgiveness. And so here is one of the things that I'm reminded of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is all made possible because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took on all of our sin. All of it, every single bit of it, he took within himself and upon himself that forgiveness was made possible, that life was made possible, that we could actually do this life that he has called us to. And how is it offered to us? So that we might become the righteousness of God, but how? In him. And so as I reflect on this passage, here's, what I'm, here's the, the place that I'm concluding is that I am spiritually blind to the sin in my own life. That there are often times that I can't see the sin that I have, uh, that I have maybe perpetrated on others, but mostly against God, right? Because our psalm this morning, against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. But what's beautiful here is that Jesus is actually offering forgiveness when I am fully culpable but incapable of recognizing it for myself. Jesus is offering forgiveness 
for those that are fully culpable and yet incapable of recognizing it within themselves. That doesn't absolve us from repentance, but it invites us into repentance because we only receive this righteousness of God when we are in him. We were crucified with him. We receive our righteousness in him. There has to be an acknowledgement and a receiving of Jesus in your life to receive the fullness of what he's offering. But when he offers it, he does not revoke it. And when we are incapable of seeing sin in our life, and when we are fully culpable of the sin in our life, when we turn to him, he forgives it still. But that doesn't, again, I said, does not absolve us from the need of repentance within our life. First John chapter one, verse nine say, or verse eight says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the work that is to be done is to acknowledge that all of us still have brokenness within our own lives. And we might not be able to see what that brokenness is. We might be spiritually blind to what it is that is within us still that we need to work on. But the good news is that Jesus has made a way for us to know what that is. He sent his Holy Spirit to speak to us, to lead us, to guide us, to teach us. And when we say that we have no sin, why is it that we might say that? It's because his word is not in us. Jesus is calling us to a deeper knowledge of him and an invitation into relationship through his holy word, through his scripture. How are we engaging in relationship with Jesus that we might be aware of sin in our lives, that we might be able to say, Lord, I want better because you offer better. And so, Father, forgive me, for I do not know what I am doing. But you offer forgiveness anyway. And this morning, I feel like there is someone that needs to hear, you are forgiven. Jesus forgives you. Come to him. Draw near to him because he freely offered it as his last prayer on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, you have offered abundant forgiveness in the light of everything else that is going on in our lives, when we know that we are fully culpable of every sin that we have committed, and yet we have found ourselves incapable of admitting it. But today, would you draw us close to you? And when we ask for your forgiveness, and when we draw close to you and know exactly who you are, it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.